welcome to Joe's Voice. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with a very special guest, my literary agent, Bonnie Nadell. Bonnie is the president of the Hill Nadell Literary Agency. She's worked in the publishing industry for nearly 40 years. Her clients have been winners of or finalists for the Pulitzer Prize, Carnegie Medal, National Book Critics Circle Award, Kirkus Prize, and numerous pen awards, among others. Bonnie, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much, Peyton, for having me. Yeah, it is a thrill to have you here. I know that you've had a busy week. You were, we were just chatting about you were on a road trip with your daughter and Marsha, getting some little women energy, some familial bonding energy as we get ready to record. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So this is going to be a good one. I'm very happy to have you here because we are talking about a chapter where it sounds like Joe March could really use literary agent. Before we get into all that, what is your relationship to little women? Kind of beyond the obvious of that you and I are working on a project together. <laughs> I mean, I must confess, I haven't read Little Women in years. I have seen the various movies, the, you know, the yes. Greta Gerwig movie. And, and I think I saw the one before that was the 90s version. Yes. But I think Little Women is one of those books that sort of stays in the back of everyone's mind from when they read it in high school or when they read it for themselves or whatever it is. And of course, everyone does have their favorite sister. Yes. And so which would be your favorite sister? Which March sister are you? I mean, I would have said, obviously, it was Joe, because Joe, of course, is the ambitious one and the most modern of the sisters. But what's funny yes. is reading this chapter, I wound up completely <laughs> siding with Amy yeah, in ways I, I that I did would. not expect. <laughs> you know, because, of course, you always think of Amy as she's the superficial one. She's the pretty one. She's the one who cares about clothes and travel and all this. And in this case, she's the most practical one. Yes. And also sort of had the best advice for Joe of all the sisters. <laughs> I'm so glad you felt, I felt the same way reading the chapter. I was like, Amy is the only one here who was thinking like a career author, an agent. She is the only one here who was giving Joe good advice. So I appreciate you siding with Amy. I, we're going to get into this chapter and the literary conundrum that Joe faces. Would you like to just recap this chapter for us? What happens in chapter 27, Literary Lessons? Joe is sort of writing for herself at the beginning of the yes. story and is very much in her own head as she's writing her novel, writing chapters, writing yeah. pieces, and the family all know sort of stay away from her when she gets deep into this stage or these moments. And then she goes to a talk with a woman who she's sort of a governess for, I guess, or sort of a companion for. I think she's sort of her companion. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's a young man there who's reading a serial in a newspaper. And he's like, this is really great. This is really fun. And of course it was the years when Dickens, you know, I think sort of Dickens was doing yeah. his serializations and various other writers were. And so the whole point was to extend it over as long a period of time in the newspaper as possible, since you were getting paid by the word in all likelihood, or certainly by yes. the <laughs> excerpt, if not by the quality. And this gives Joe the idea that she too could do this kind of, you know, what we would call now probably mass market fiction. Yeah. So, you know, it's an adventure story or it's a romance, or but it's certainly very commercial fiction, which may not be what Joe had been writing up in her garret by herself. No, and it's not. It's not what she's passionate about. It's boilerplate, we might say. 
Right. And so yes. he's like, I've been reading this and it's great. And there's a contest and you could win $100, which in those years, I think was probably a great deal of money. And if you submit your own novel, chapters, excerpt, whatever, <laughs> which gives her the idea that she could do this. And she goes home and she writes essentially a pot boiler from what it sounds like. Yes. And <laughs> throws everything in. It's like if you had a stew and you're like, I'll just put everything in the stew. It doesn't necessarily taste good, but it's going to be big. But she does win the prize, which is very exciting because all of a sudden she's earning money for the family and is able to send her mother and Beth, who of course is the ailing sister, off yes. to the seaside to get better and to yeah. rest and relaxation. <laughs> and this sort of sets Joe on the course of being able to do others of these sort of pot boilers and send them off to various newspapers. And she starts to earn money for the family. And you see, she's like, this paid the butcher bill and this paid for the dresses and then this paid for better things for the house and all this sort of thing. But then, of course, she gets the idea that she should submit a novel. And it's I assume it's the novel she's been working on in the garret all this time. Yes, the passion project. The passion project. She's been up in the attic just scribbling over. Right, and asks everyone in the family their opinion. And of course, everyone has a different opinion and everyone comes at it from a different angle. And the father wants it to be more metaphysical and literary and Meg wants it to be more tragic. And her mother sort of says, we'll see what other people say. And Amy is the only one who's like, get to it. Do what they, <laughs> do what they need, get it done, get some money. She's the only one who's yeah. like, you're writing for money and do a better job, essentially. Yeah. So Joe sort of chops it up to please everyone. And by doing that, of course, pleases no one, including herself. Yes. But somehow does get it published, does get $300 <laughs> for this, and then proceeds to get all the criticism from many different angles. Yes. Yes. All of which is different. All of which is contradictory things. And then she doesn't yes. know what to do. Yes. <laughs> so that's essentially... I mean, I feel like that sums up what the chapter is about. Yes, that was a fabulous lightning round recap. You got all the big points. And what is fascinating about that, it's a very complex, unhappy tale of an author's kind of first published work. And it's not something that makes it into any of these adaptations. It is, <laughs> right. it's, yeah, this is chapter four of the second volume. There's still 20 chapters or so to go. And rather than ending the novel with triumphantly holding up her published novel. She publishes a really mediocre, bad novel that she's ashamed of <laughs> at the outset. And she has to think about, you know what, this just didn't go the way I planned. And this was a dream I've had for a long time. It's certainly a project that I was working on and cared a lot about. And I don't like that it came out in the world this way. And I think that's maybe a more common experience for authors than the triumphant, perfect debut novel, certainly. So I was very curious to get you here on board and hear the advice that you might give to Joe in this situation. If you were at the round table with the marches, it sounds like you're siding with Amy, but I would love to hear what advice you would give Joe. So we'll read you what the publisher had to say about the notes for Joe, and we can start there. So let's see. The stories found a market and encouraged by this fact, Joe resolved to make a bold stroke for fame and fortune. Having copied her novel for the fourth time, read it to all her confidential friends, and submitted it with fear and trembling to three publishers, she at last disposed of it on condition that she would cut down one third and omit all the parts which she particularly admired. So she has an offer on the table. She has publishers 
for this, it sounds like she's going to get $300 for it, which I did run the inflation calculator on. And I can tell you that was about $4,800. So not a fortune, but also a, a pretty penny, especially for someone kind of living in impoverished conditions like Joe. I don't, I, I can't speak to the advanced setup, whether that was going to be paid out in quarters, but <laughs> that's the money on the table. So what would you tell Joe if this was the offer on the table? I mean, certainly of 1868, I would tell her to take the money. <laughs> okay. And I, mean, I pretty much would say that for anyone, no matter what the amount of money, because if you keep it in a drawer, nothing happens. Mm. But if you yeah. send it out into the world, even if only a few things happen or a little bit happens, it, that allows for something to work as opposed to being precious about it. I mean, I think the one thing <laughs> one learns about publishing and writing is being precious about it never works. Yeah. Yeah. And, but in her case, trying to make it into a collaborative process is yeah. the worst thing she could have done because right. she, it, right, by trying to please everyone, the publisher <laughs> included, she takes out every part that she actually likes and right. so turns <laughs> it into a monstrosity that yeah. it's not even her anymore is what it feels like. No. And this episode in Joe's life is very much based on an episode in the real Alcott's life where she kind of enjoyed her first burst of real literary acclaim. She'd been publishing these pot boilers. I said boilerplate earlier. That was my mistake. But she's been publishing pot boilers. She's been publishing anonymously. And her first work of real literary acclaim was this book, Hospital Sketches, which was a fictionalized account of her time as a nurse in a civil war hospital for soldiers of color. So she had this kind of burst of literary acclaim and success and publishers started knocking on her door and saying, well, do you have anything else to publish? And she had this passion project novel, Moods, which she'd been working on for years. She said, this is the time for Moods. It's going to go out. It's going to be wonderful. And like Joe, she was asked to shave it down by a third, cut up a bunch of things, change a bunch of other things and send it out into the world in a form that she didn't like. And... It didn't do well, either commercially or critically. She was just really upset that she'd let her baby be butchered. And there's some, we'll get into the kind of the implications of the language used here about Joe laying a newborn baby on a table and chopping it up like an ogre. <laughs> it just, it, it became a very mercenary process and one that she wasn't happy with. And, you know, I think it's, this is one place where she really was barely putting the fictional sheen on the scene. Like, this is very much how this process went from moods, which, Unlike Little Women, which was in its own way a pot boiler, moods was something she really cared about. She really wanted to say something about this protagonist who was a kind of a, a, a woman who we might today call mentally ill, who kind of went through cycling moods and was forced to marry a man she didn't love. And she was make, trying to make grand statements and she ultimately had to turn it into this dramatic love triangle thing that she never wanted. It's tale as old as time. But, so that comes through very clearly here. And I think what you're saying, you say that you align with Amy here, but I also hear a lot of what you're saying and what Ms. Mrs. March says. She says, it seems to me that Joe will profit more by taking the trial than by waiting. Criticism is the best test of such work for it will show her both her unsuspected merits and faults and help her to do better next time. We are too partial, but the praise and blame of outsiders will prove useful even if she gets but little money. Now, how do you feel about that? Because Joe does do that in a way. And she gets the criticism. She doesn't find it helpful. I mean, what would you add or change about the advice that Mrs. March is giving? I think, right, Mrs. March certainly is, if you will learn to improve, if you yeah. hear these criticisms. Mm -hmm. And it also, I mean, we certainly 
see Joe at this stage at her most precious and most sensitive. Yes. And, yeah. And kind of a little annoying, I must say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it feels as though no one has ever written a novel before, which we know that yeah. by 1868, <laughs> there have been plenty of novels and perhaps yes. centuries of novels. And it does feel like rather than reading, you know, the great things that came before, you know, reading Dickens, reading Thackeray, reading <laughs> Hawthorne, reading all sorts of people. She sort of is like, I'm going to reinvent the form in a way. Yes. Very ambitious. And <laughs> Right. And you're like, but you don't. And you actually <laughs> sort of produce something that's not very good. So, I mean, I think, mm-hmm. yes, her mother is telling her in a very kind way that yes. having this criticism will make her perhaps improve and elevate her own work. <laughs> but she's saying it in a way of just like, well, you know, perhaps you will learn from this. Yes. And that in a much gentler way than perhaps than the world would say to, would say it to her. Yeah. It sounds like Marmy is suggesting a very healthy approach, you know, of an author to their own criticism, you know, just by trying to take it as feedback for improvement rather than something to tear her down. We do get Joe responding to the criticism at the end of the chapter, you said, mother, that criticism would help me, but how can it when it's so contradictory that I don't know whether I've written a promising book or broken all the Ten Commandments, cried poor Joe. I mean, talk about precious. Uh, <laughs> turning over a heap of notices, the perusal of which filled her with pride and joy one minute, wet wrath and dismay the next. This man says, an exquisite book full of truth, beauty, and earnestness. All is sweet, pure, and healthy, continued the perplexed authoress. The next, the theory of the book is bad, full of morbid fancies, spiritualistic ideas, and unnatural characters. Now, as I had no theory of any kind, don't believe in spiritualism, and copied my characters from life, I don't see how this critic can be right. Another says, it's one of the best American novels which has appeared for years. I know better than that. So, humble. (laughs) And the next asserts that though it is original and written with great force and feeling, it is a dangerous book. Tisn't. Some make fun of it, some overpraise, and nearly all insist that I had a deep theory to expound when I only wrote it for the pleasure and the money. <laughs> I wish I'd printed the whole or not at all, for I do hate to be so misjudged. So, I mean, let us know how you really feel, Joe. Uh, she's, <laughs> she is making her feelings clear. I wonder if you've ever had a situation where one of your authors was facing not just negative criticism, but just wildly diverse criticism and just didn't know what to make of that. How would you advise an author in that situation to kind of muddle through? Should they read their reviews at all is the question. You know, I have writers who fall on both sides of that divide. I mean, there are ones Mm -hmm. who never read their reviews, don't really want to hear their reviews, or would want to be, I mean, David Foster Wallace wanted to be warned if there was a particularly bad review. Yeah. It's the sort of thing where, you want to know just so that like when you go out in public, it's not like, hmm, you got spinach between your teeth and no one's telling you. Right. Yeah. That, you know, and people are like, yeah, saw that, you know. So <laughs> it was sort of always my job to be the one to say, mm, the review of the Times wasn't great or right. here wasn't great or whatever it was. I mean, other writers are fine reading their reviews. Certainly, if we compare where Joe is with, let's say, Amazon reviews or Goodreads reviews at the moment. Right. Like it's the sort of thing where it drives readers crazy. It drives yes. writers crazy because the okay. way readers see things are, you know, vastly different. And there's always going to be a couple of cranky people who simply want to 
say mean things for the sake of saying mean things. All right. Or, I mean, I had an author where she was writing about going to the Azores and one of the people on Amazon was like, I don't know why she learned Spanish. And it's like, because it's a Portuguese country, that's perhaps why, <laughs> you know, you're an idiot. Yeah. Nothing you say could be taken seriously. <laughs> but I do feel like Joe is kind of at that stage where it's as though she's checking her Amazon ranking every day or she's checking her Goodreads <laughs> reviews every day yeah. and then wondering what to do about it. And I mean, for mm-hmm. any writer at a certain point, the person you need to please is yourself and then your editor yeah. and everyone else takes a back seat because if yes. you don't believe in what you're doing, no one yeah. else is going to believe in it. And certainly, you know, there are times where people are like, I'm going to write a romance and it's going to be a bestseller just like sort of major romance writers. And the problem is if you go into it with a certain arrogance or a certain tolerance for this form, your readers yeah. going to know it. And they're going to see it and they're going to be like, you're making fun of me and I don't want to read you. Yeah. And that's, it seems like Joe is, I don't even know that Joe is going in to overturn the form at this point. That's maybe one motivation of the thousand that she's bringing into the, you know, editorial suite with her. She's bringing Um, a lot of baggage. Let's put it that way. Yes. Bringing a whole lot of baggage to this. What's fascinating here. So this aside, as she's editing, so with Spartan firmness, the young authoress laid her firstborn on the, her table and chopped it up as ruthlessly as any ogre. In the hope of pleasing everyone, she took everyone's advice and like the old man and his donkey in the fable, suited nobody. And I, when I was rereading this chapter to prepare today, I was recalling, I sent a, actually a recent draft of the my own Little Women adaptation to my friend James Frankie Thomas for feedback because I throughout this process, I've sort of been, as you know, getting kind of different feedbacks and different readers. It needs to be more this, it needs to be more that. And when I sent this latest draft to James, he just sent me back the Aesop fable of the donkey, <laughs> which is, at which <laughs> he was like, you know, this is the, for anyone who's listening and is unfamiliar, this is the old man and the little boy who are riding into town to sell the donkey. And the little boy is riding on the donkey. The first observer says, how dare that young man take the donkey from the elderly? This is disrespectful. And then the elderly man sits on the donkey. And then the next person says, oh my goodness, you're making that poor child walk, you old man. Give up the donkey to the young, right? And, and they progress into town and everyone has feedback about what they should do with the donkey. And in the end, the donkey needs the tragic end. The advice is just sort of don't take everyone's advice. But so it's so funny to see that recurring here, literally in Little Women. <laughs> it comes full circle. <laughs> yeah, so I can certainly identify, which is to say, there's something else that I think is interesting here is this language of with Spartan firmness, the young authoress laid her firstborn on the table and chopped it up. We talk a lot about kind of gender in this book and the ways that Joe is sort of working against this maternal wifely prospect. And here she is not just an author and a career woman. She is the anti-mother. She is chopping up a baby like a Spartan warrior or an ogre. <laughs> it's fascinating. I wonder what you make of that language coming in here and what that says about Joe's professional life or Alcott's own view of being a working woman. It's interesting because <laughs> what we see is, I mean, what Joe's advances now buy are yeah. clothes, food, yes. things for the yeah. house. It's buying a new horse and cart, for example. No. Or... No a new roof or, you know, things that are, you know, one would consider 
the master of the house, you know, sort of like the father's job to provide that kind of thing. So it's interesting that what she's doing are what the money earns is sort of more feminine things, more maternal things. Yes. Yeah. So even though Alakata is like, oh, Joe's now providing income, and it feels like there's a little dig at the father who doesn't seem to provide very much income. Or sure doesn't. (laughs) Or sort of it's this dig of he's been waiting years to create Mm -hmm. whatever it is he's supposed to create. And even now, 30 years later, he still hasn't done it. So we do get this little sort of snide dig at the father. But the rest of the time, he is sort of treated very much as sort of as an icon, as the one who thinks about metaphysical things and thinks about sort of larger literary ideas and just want to be like, no, Joe, do what you want. Be, you know, he's, yes. he's the one who sort of wants her to aspire to a higher purpose. Yes. And Amy's like, just get it done. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it does feel it. So it is interesting that it's what her money pays for is not, yeah, is sort of, Sort of the little luxuries, or I mean, it's not the butcher bill is not a luxury, obviously, but right. it's not anything masculine or what we would consider masculine. Sure. Yeah. It's so the butcher's bill, we have a phantom hand put down a new carpet. The curse of the Coventries proved the blessing of the marches in the ways of grocery and gowns. And with her $100 prize from that initial contest, that works out to $1,600 in modern. You know, that's enough to send. Beth and Marmy to the seaside for a month or two, which I would like to know where their hotel is, uh, (laughs) where I can go stay at the seaside for $1,600 for two months. But yeah, it's she's something of a breadwinner. She's not, but even the income that she's making here is not quite enough to lift the family out of poverty yet. Alcott was making that money. Alcott was a millionaire even by I remember being surprised when I was at the Houghton Archive and going through some of her royalty statements. There were enough zeros that these would be comfortable figures for an author in 2023, which, so, you know, you can only imagine just how much that works out. She, you know, I found stock receipts. She invested in the railroads. She was really trying to be wise with her money. But Joe is not there yet. Joe is kind of at an earlier stage than Alka was. And it's nice that she can now, you know, they don't have to stress, stress about the butcher's bill. They can maybe replace that shabby old carpet. But She's not quite there yet. She enjoyed a taste of this satisfaction and ceased to envy richer girls, taking great comfort in the knowledge that she could supply her own wants and need no ask no one for a penny. So there's a degree of self-sufficiency, but not quite the full paternal breadwinning role yet. But she's maybe tasty for more. Yeah, you certainly can see there's a little bit of independence that she didn't have before. Yes. And certainly on that order of having been to Edith Wharton's house in Lenox, Massachusetts. Yeah. She was earning enough to buy an incredible house and land. Yeah. And the husband was something of a near-to-well. I don't remember the whole story, but he was kind of, he was kind, he was kind of a bad guy. And it was obviously like freeloading <laughs> offer and all this stuff. But you sort of think those royalties and those books bought a lot in those years. Yeah, no kidding. And the common refrain I hear, you know, for people who sort of disagree. So my, the focus of my Alcott research is sort of the degree to which she may have it may be more appropriate to understand her as a trans man. And something I hear a lot from critics of that is, well, of course, anyone, anyone would want to be a man in a time when women weren't allowed to work outside the home. And not only is that, the Alcots were very much of a class where they had to start working outside the home from a very young age. They just did not have it like that. As you were saying with Eden Worth, Edith Wharton's husband, it was a similar situation with Bronson Alcott, the father. He, so he ran a very successful school in Boston, And when he admitted a black student, 
a bunch of white, wealthy Boston families pulled their students out and the school failed. So that really, he invested a lot of money in the school. It was doing very well suddenly overnight due to a very principled stand. All that money was gone. The venture was gone. His effort to start a vegan commune in the Fruitlands didn't go much better. We've talked about this, but he was like, we're going to do this without animal labor, animal products of any kind. We're going to till the fields ourselves. I've never farmed before, but that's not going to stop me. And it just, it wasn't sustainable. And then, you know, his struggles with mental health and really kind of being unable to hold a job meant that every member of the family from Mrs. Alcott to all four of the daughters were working outside the home from a very young age. So the economic situation is here that, you know, the difference even between that $100 prize and the $300 for the novel, it must have been v- very substantial for Joe. You can see why she is going for it. So that's a motivator here. It also says a lot about Amy that she is the one here who's saying, do as he tells you, he knows what will sell and we don't. Make a good popular book and get as much money as you can. That's Amy. And she tempers that with by and by, when you've got a name, you can afford to digress and have philosophical and metaphysical people in your novels. So I think that's the most clear-headed view of the subject. Amy is thinking long-term here. Amy is thinking beyond this $300 for this first book. And you really liked Amy's advice, you were saying. You identify with Amy here. What gives Amy the makings of a good agent? It's exactly that, that she is thinking long-term. She's thinking it's not yeah. simply get the money on this book. And I mean, it's yeah. interesting when we think about, and the fact that the family really was always like, where's the next paycheck? Come from? Yeah. That, yeah. That the money is so specific in the book, because I'm not sure if I think about other novels from that time period or sort of pre-Civil War, post-Civil War, where they're like, it's $100, it's $300. <laughs> I'm not sure that other books have exactly amounts of money so you know mm-hmm. what we're talking about here. I mean, if you think about Uncle Tom's Cabin or things like that, I'm not sure they're like, a slave costs this much money kind of thing, or other economics of the day, which would be interesting to know. I mean, I haven't read any of these books in a long time, but I do feel that would have been around the same time. I mean, it's around, yeah. the, it's right pre-Civil War. And are you Googling this to see if it's possible to find? So what I'm Googling is I'm thinking about another, not quite a novel of the era, but Pride and Prejudice, which came, which came out in 1813 and was also kind of deeply preoccupied with very specific amounts of money and income. And which, you know, not incidentally was also a novel by a woman and deeply concerned about marriage and viability and (laughs) marrying for love versus marrying for wealth. So it's interesting that these novels, these two novels at least, really are focused on specific monetary figures and what you can do with that money specifically. The Butcher's Bill, The New Carpet, sending Beth to this mythic Cape Cod $800 a month hotel that I, again... (laughs) Where can I find this hotel? Yes. Where can I find it? Yes. Yeah, I I appreciate the very clear-eyed view of I, because I, something that people don't understand about Alcott is that she was an incredibly shrewd negotiator. I don't know when the profession of a literary agent became, I don't know what, when that first became part of the publishing process necessarily, but I do know that Alcott was negotiating all of her own contracts and royalties herself. And there is a really funny, in the Houghton archive, where I was looking through, we only have one side of the correspondence, but letters from Alcott's publisher, Thomas Niles. And there's one letter where he is just, he's saying, your request is completely out of the question. I'm already going broke with, you know, giving you the royalty rates that you've asked for. I can't possibly do more. We have no, little women succeeded, but this 
old-fashioned girl, and maybe Little Women was just a fluke. I can't afford to take a chance on this. You're going to get the same royalty, right? He's just being very irate and nasty and rude. And then, <laughs> and we don't have Alcott's side of the correspondence. So there's that nasty, rude, you're asking for too much money letter. And then there's the gap in the correspondence. And the next letter is like a page long. Dear Ms. Alcott, we will give you the money you asked for. Thank you, Thomas. <laughs> we know that she knew her way around a business deal. Like, she could do that very successfully. So maybe this is a reflection of a younger Alcott who didn't have her bearings about her yet. And was like, yes, I will take this $4,800 in modern terms and I will carve the book up. I will do whatever you ask. There's no, there's no thinking long term. She's not even making the concession so that she can maybe build upon it later. As Amy is saying, she is taking everyone's advice and just throwing it out into the world and hoping it sticks. So yeah, what I'm saying is that people just don't know that she was a good negotiator, that she was a good advocate for herself. And I think this is a situation where maybe Joe needed a stronger advocate or needed, I don't know, she has, the problem is she's, she's speaking to too many people she trusts and they're all giving her different advice. It's right. Yeah. Something else that's very prominent in this chapter is the question of the pot boiler versus the passion project. And I'm wondering, there's sort of this, even in the most recent Little Women adaptation, there's this kind of mythic status of the first novel. And, you know, the book ends on this resonant note with Joe being handed her first novel and like looking up to the sky and it's all been worth it to get here. How often is that an author, a debut author's experience? And how often is it that, you know, the passion project, like the true mark of excellence comes later? Because I think there is a lot of pressure on like kind of first time or aspiring authors to just get it all right the first time. I'd be, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how debut authors can kind of temper their expectations is what I'm asking. I think the great thing about the debut novel or sort of any debut book yeah. is no one is waiting for it. There's no, yes. there's no expectation. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. no sense of the world out there right. in the way that there does become for a second novel or a third novel where mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's a publisher, there's an editor, there's a track record, there's all these things, and I have to work my way around it. Whereas the great thing about any first book is that, I mean, for most people, it's the thing that's been in their head for years. Yes. Yeah. And it's the thing that they are passionate about, and it's the story they mm-hmm. feel compelled to tell. And so that's the one that always sort of feels, I mean, not the, necessarily the purest, but it is the one where you're doing it for yourself because there yes. is no yeah. one, there's no one waiting. There's no one asking when's it going to be done in those cases. It's just, it's what each person wants to bring into the world. And so, yes, I mean, that's sort of always the most fun part is when, you could tell someone, I sold your first book, I sold your first novel, because it really is the thing that someone has been working on by themselves in a room for a really long time. And all of a sudden, the world is sort of sending out a welcoming hand. It's saying, come on, be part of this. So it is great. And I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's not the first book that's the trouble. It's the second book that's always the trouble. Yeah. Because- The first one, if 10 people read it, if 100,000 people read it, it's sort of like you have no expectations at that stage. Yeah. So it's pure joy. It's pure. It's just what's coming out of someone's head. And the second book, all of a sudden, it's like, I've got to make it better. I've got to make it this. But here are the criticisms of the first book. Here's where I have to go. 
And I think in a lot of cases, it's what slows people down. I mean, it, you know, there are writers, it takes years to get to the second book because there's so much talk in one's head. I mean, essentially what Joe is going through here with all the contradictory advice and her own yeah. lack of sort of belief in herself and lack of, I know mm-hmm. what I want it to be and I'm going to make it that. Mm-hmm. It's just then this is her second book. And in some ways, sure, it's the passion project versus the pot boilers that she's been writing for money. But it's as though she sort yeah. of forgot everything she learned by writing the pot boilers. And that's a very good point because she has taken an incredibly, she's like, I know what the market wants with these pot boilers. I'm going to do this and that. Before she even leaves the event that she's at, she's taken a look at this other story and she has immediately decided that she's going to enter this contest to win the prize. And by the time the lecture ended and the audience awoke, she had built up a splendid fortune for herself, not the first founded on paper, and was already deep in the concoction of her story, being unable to decide whether the duel should come before the elopement or after the murder. So I think she, she knows the conventions. She is just, she's not being precious the way she is about this debut novel. She's like, this is what's going to make money. This is what's going to do well. This is what's going to make a good story. There's an understanding of craft that just isn't there when she's carving up the first book. It's, right. it's yeah, it's, right. it's interesting. People, I don't know, is there something there about forgetting that you're writing for an audience or is the issue that Joe was writing for too many people and should have been writing just for herself? What do you think? I think it's actually a combination because yeah. she does get what, when she goes for the prize and then when she's doing yeah. the next ones, she gets who her audience is. She gets that these are meant to be entertaining. She gets that where she throws in an earthquake, you know, in Lisbon as, you yep. know, of the drama. <laughs> and she doesn't think twice about like, oh, is this, would this be real? Would I not, do? you know? So in some ways she's both too caught up in her own head and not thinking about a reader enough. It's like yeah. she, she doesn't think about being read and how this is going to feel on the page to people. It's as though she's sort of forgotten everything she has learned already. Yeah. It's sort of remarkable that Alcott would humble Joe in this way, you know, because Joe has kind of up to this point just marched through this book, not very sure of herself and independent and self-conquering in a way, you know, she's had her trials and her pitfalls, but the quality of her art and and her talent has never really been called into question here. And it's, so it's a scary destabilizing moment for Joe. And it comes at the very beginning of this book, sort of a, a discordant note coming this early to see that Joe is is fumbling a bit. And I wonder what the purpose of this chapter being included here was. Like maybe she certainly got a lot of mail. She got a lot of mail. I've been reading her letters and she, you know, she answers letters from other young women who want to be authors. And it, what's funny is in those letters gives them very practical economic advice. I was I remember reading one letter recently she was, a woman had written to her and I can't comment on the quality of the story. I haven't read the story, but it was referred to as a quote unquote Indian tale. And Alcott was saying, yes, you should send it to this publisher. Indian tales are hot right now. And he's good at selling. Like, <laughs> like Alcott, exactly. he has a specific, yeah, knowledge of the market. And this is what's going to sell. Whereas, so I think maybe this is included here as like a cautionary tale for those aspiring authors, the young Joes who are reading this book and might one day find themselves in Alcott's shoes. And she's saying, don't make the mistakes that I did. Right. No, <laughs> which is interesting. It's, I mean, yeah. even the beginning part where Joe is sort of up in the garret writing and sort of <laughs> sometimes it's very well and sometimes it's going badly. Yeah. But in some ways, it's very clear Alcott is making fun of Joe. Yeah. Making fun of Joe's 
seriousness about her own yes. work and her own <laughs> and about her own writing. And I mean, certainly, if Alcott <laughs> is as good a business person as yeah, you say, at a certain point, it's yeah, this isn't going to get you anywhere, and it's not going to get you readers, and no. sort of the cap thrown astray. I mean, in some ways, it's all very. <laughs> It's sort of, I suppose, like the 1860s version of Snide. It's a little, it's a little yes. Snide. Yeah. Right. No, and it, it is Snide. And I think it's, I'm so glad you brought us back to the beginning of the chapter and the portrayal of Joe's actual kind of day-to-day creative writing practice, which is just locking herself in a room wearing a hat that signals do not disturb. Essentially, <laughs> right. yes. Right. Yeah, and writing day and night. Because and this is, again, getting into kind of the later writing of Alcott and these letters and journals. When she was young, she would, quote unquote, fall into a vortex and write day and night and not sleep enough and not eat enough and just pound everything out in one sitting. I was joking with another episode I recorded recently. We were talking about what would Louisa May Alcott's Dunkin' Donuts order be. And we kind of agreed it was cold brew at 6 p.m. to keep, you know, to fuel an (laughs) all-nighter. And there's something there about kind of, I, I think she's pointing also to, like you said, she's making fun of Joe a little bit here. I think she's pointing to kind of the unsustainability of this kind of writing practice and the importance maybe of looking after yourself. Because again, something that she really regrets in later life is that she's like, I worked too hard and now I have neuralgia and I can't write for more than an hour at a time. And it's because I would deprive myself of sleep and food (laughs) when I was a younger person. So I'm wondering if you had a client who said, this is my writer's practice, what advice would you give that writer. I don't know, because you're thinking long run, you're thinking Amy, you're thinking sustainability. How does a Joe with this kind of writing practice reform themselves? I mean, not to sort of use the adage of like self-care, but you're sort of you kind of <laughs> need self-care. And yeah, you do feel like any writer at that pace is going to burn themselves out. Yeah. And it's sort of the mad genius approach to writing as opposed <laughs> to what was Hemingway who's like, you write a thousand words a day and you just write a thousand words a day. And some of them are going to be great and some of them won't. But it does feel like this very, I mean, it's a very romantic view of what a writer does as opposed to you get one good chapter a day and maybe that's it. And then you go for a walk or you cook dinner or whatever it is. So I think it is all about making fun of this sort of romantic notion just the way you sort of think of the mad composer state, you know, yeah. sitting in there. I mean, is it Chopin? It's someone where it's like the mad composer sitting in their attic, freezing to death and composing a symphony yeah. at the same time. And you're just like, yeah, yeah. you're going to die by the time you're 30 if you do this because <laughs> no one can live at this pace. So yeah. you do sort of feel like Joe. It sort of feels like pressure, both being mm-hmm. precious and pressure on herself. For no purpose. And I think Amy is sort of being like, this isn't going to help you in the long run. And sort of the only one who gets that. The father doesn't really get that. You sort of understand. He's like, no, aim higher. That's not going to help anyone. No, it's certainly not going to pay the bills. And, you know, I think Alcott, she points this out when she said that he has plenty of mellow, ripe fruit that he could pick himself, and he's simply choosing not to. Like he is. Her father, who's saying, aim higher, be perfect, is not producing anything of his own. So it's these extreme opposites of the person who is all talk and no action and the person who is all action. But is that action worth it? Is the action producing what the author wants it to produce? And something that we know about Alcott is she died at 55. She was very young. 
this was, you know, after being chronically ill and suffering with like extreme chronic pain her whole life. That wasn't entirely because of her pushing herself too hard at work. When she was a nurse during the Civil War, she came down with a fever and they treated it with mercury, which you know, it's not, so they, it's not helpful in the long run. Right. Yeah, they poisoned her. <laughs> you know, one of the, the most tragic things about her life is that her father passed away in his 90s and Louisa May Alcott died just a couple of days after him. She was just pushing and pushing herself. So I think she was old enough and wise enough in the writing of this book to be able to kind of put this caution, this cautionary note here saying like, don't burn the midnight oil, look after yourself. So I appreciate that it's here. And I want to draw your attention something that we've discussed the hat, the symbolic hat that she wears. And depending on the position of this hat, her family knows when they poke their heads in, whether she can be interrupted or not. But I wanted to say a cap of the same material adorned with a cheerful red bow into which she bundled her hair when the decks were cleared for action. This made me think, it made me think bandana. I don't know if you <laughs> made that connection. <laughs> I didn't think that. No, but yes. It's, for those who aren't in the note, Bonnie is one of Bonnie's kind of your very first client, right? Your very first. David Foster Wallace. Yeah, he got his MFA in Arizona. And I think he said he adopted wearing a bandana to kind of keep the sweat from falling on his writing as he was. And then that kind of became his trademark. But it seems very similar to Joe's cap here. It's, you know, it's bundling her hair. The decks are cleared for action. I don't want to be distracted by my long hair falling in my face. It's just a, it's a nice little trademark here that we have for Joe. And so I don't want to keep you here too much longer, Bonnie, but there's one point that I do want to touch on that we haven't really covered, which is we've talked about sending Beth to the seashore to get well again with this prize money. But when she's getting advice from her whole family, Beth sort of remains silent for the whole conversation and then ultimately says, I don't really care what happens to it. She just says, I should so like to see it printed soon. And there was an unconscious emphasis on the last word and a wistful look in the eyes that never lost their childlike candor, which chilled Joe's heart for a minute with her foreboding fear and decided her to make her little venture soon. So that's a powerful motivator. Right. I want to get this book out the door so that Beth will be alive to read it. <laughs> Just, that seems like very real pressure and maybe a more powerful motivator than any of the other feedback for just getting the book out into the world. I'm wondering if when an author is faced with that kind of external pressure to get something done by this certain date for an emotional reason, I wonder, is there a healthy way to reckon with that? Is there a healthier way that Joe could have responded to that comment from Beth in this situation? I mean, that actually is like sort of the most poignant moment of the chapter. It really is where it's sort of, it's the one thing which feels emotionally true yeah yeah. and you know and that yes she loves her sister and she wants her sister to see the book i mean certainly there are stories of you know writers who are like my mother or father is elderly or dying or ill Mm -hmm. and they want them to see the book published and in some cases you know that happens and in some cases it doesn't but i mean i'm Mm -hmm. sure for anyone in that position it can be emotionally wrenching Oh, of course. And the thing is, as an agent, there's only so much you can do. I mean, you can be like, yes, we will try to move this ahead faster. But the problem is, you know, you sort of are like, I get that that's a pressure. But one can only, you can only do what you can do in those situations. Yeah, that I think that's very good advice. There really is only so much a person can do. And what I read here, just if we're bringing it back to Alcott's biography again, is maybe some real life regret. Because I was just looking up Elizabeth Alcott, the real life Beth passed away at 22 in 1858. And Little Women did not come out until 
1868, so fully 10 years later. And even of the earlier writing that Alcott published, the only book that she published that Elizabeth Alcott would have been able to read was her very first book, Flower Fables, which came out in 1849 and was just a collection of books that she'd written for Emerson's daughter. So the stakes were not the stakes were not high with that publication, right? But so all of this, maybe there's some real regret and grief there for, you know, having written all these books and had this literary success and just her younger sister never being able to see any of it or read any of those books. I feel that here and I think that might be the reason for some of the emotional truth that you're pointing to. It's quite yeah, sad. I feel like Beth is always the tragic figure of the novel and Beth is always sort of the shadow behind everything yeah. else. And yes, I'm sure for Alka, it would have mm-hmm. been like, I'm going to create this character in homage to my sister who yeah. didn't live to see this. No, and that's such a good point because the very first book was sort of the narration of the childhood when all of the girls were alive. And then the second book moves them into adulthood and relates life events like Meg's marriage and you know the publication of this first novel that the real life Elizabeth wasn't present for. Like we were thinking about at Meg's wedding, Beth is barely there at all. She's sort of, she, like you said, she's a shadow in this text because she just, she wasn't present at the real event. It's hard to know how she would have responded on the day of the wedding or, you know, how she would have even responded to Joe's novel. That's an, another interesting thing. We, we get this, um, we get all this feedback from the family. And then when the book is published and Joe is responding to it. We don't hear what Beth thinks of it. <laughs> There's never a moment where Beth is like, well, it's okay. I mean, I'm just glad that I can read your writing at all. There's nothing. It's this hollowness in the text that, that is really interesting. Woof. Yeah. Well, Bonnie, thank you so much for being here. It has been a true pleasure to hear from you on this subject. And I know that I know there are many aspiring authors and other authors who listen to Joe's voice, and I'm sure they will enjoy your advice. Joe, wherever you are out in the alternative universe, I hope you enjoyed this as well. So as we wrap up, where can people find you and Hill Nadell online? How can they support your authors and their work? I mean, our website is hillnadell.com. We tweet, we have an Instagram We have the list of books on the website. People can see what's been published, what's coming out. And also if they want to submit to us, they can follow the directions on the website because it's pretty clear of sort of what to do and how to do it. But certainly for anyone, I would say, don't do what Joe did. It doesn't (laughs) actually make the book better. It may be a very romantic notion of how people should write, but it doesn't actually produce the book. That's what you find. No. That culprit midnight. It doesn't necessarily make the book a better book. No, it's, it makes Cold Brew at Midnight especially might make the book illegible. I, don't, I would not recommend that to right. everybody. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie. It has been a total pleasure having you here. As always, I am your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca and you can buy both sides now wherever books are sold. You can also now find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. You can follow us there for news, updates, sneak previews of forthcoming episodes, pictures of Timothy Chalamet, all the basics. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.